Good morning, everyone. We'll just let people who are just arriving grab a seat. There are a few seats around. If you get, end up in the seats over there, it looks like you could almost be watching a whole different show over there. So let us know if it's a good one. <laughs> I'm just going to briefly introduce myself and uh, fill you in a bit on what we're going to be talking about what the session today is going to involve. So many of you will have met me before or heard me speak before. My name is Kate Middleton. Um, I'm not married to Prince William. Um, I'm, my daughter says that I'm the other Kate Middleton, which is nice that she thinks that I came second. I, I was actually here first, but we'll, we won't, you know. <laughs> so I am a psychologist by training. I started out as a medic and then retrained and uh, then eventually, long, long story, but ended up working for the church. So have some sympathy for my parents who aren't Christians at all, who'd never had anything to do with church. Uh, my mother has still been heard at weddings and dinner parties telling her friends that I'm a doctor. And when I said to her mum, that's, that's actually not what I do, she said, yes, but it's a lot easier to explain and a lot less embarrassing. So, <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> I work at the moment with a, her, with, a, with a church in Hitchin in Hertfordshire. And you'll be hearing some more about Hitchin. Uh, anyone else from Hertfordshire today? Yay, excellent, excellent. There are a few people around, so yeah, you'll be hearing about that. I've also just completed a couple of years um, living and working in Paris. So uh, Paris to Hitchin is, is totally at the same level, in case anyone was wondering. Uh, and the train ride this morning into London, just the same as, you know, the train coming in over the Seine with the Eiffel Tower. It's, all, it's exactly the same, yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about today is a topic that's really dear to my heart. I work with all ages. I specialize in um, issues around emotions and emotional distress. And I've done a lot of work with um, schools and with teenagers. And increasingly, as I, as I get older, the people I work with get younger because I'm getting more and more referrals that are coming from primary school age children as well. And that's why I, I call this session Generation Distress. Because as I go around traveling and speaking and talking to people, more and more the message I'm getting back is that this isn't just a few children, a few young people. This is more of a generational issue. I have two children myself. My daughter is, is 10. She's, she's the smart one in our family. Um, and, and it's very sobering to think that she is, is about to enter a world where I know that in, within a few years, several of her friends statistically will be struggling with mental health problems. At the moment, their biggest concern is, is still um, you know, what music they should be listening to or how to persuade me to let them access videos on YouTube. Um, but soon, this, this is the next step for them. So it's a sobering issue. And in this seminar, I want to think about what the issue is and what we're facing. But I also want to, to think very practically, think about how do we make a difference on the ground? Because as you'll see, there is more and more need, more and more demand for us to be engaging with young people, with children in our communities. And I'm going to introduce you to a couple of guys who are here on the front row from FaZe, which is a fantastic organisation, which I do some work with more now, hopefully, that I'm actually living in the same area as them, um, in our town in Hitchin. And they are very involved, as you'll hear, with working with schools. So Hopefully you'll get some really practical insight today as well as a bit more of an understanding of the problem. So what we have to be aware of when we're working with children and young people, whatever their ages, is that this is a time of change. There, there are not really times in children's, young people's lives when anything is static. So my son at the moment is three, my daughter is ten. They are both changing in very different ways, although strangely most of those ways seem to involve shouting at me. 
from both of them. My son, at the moment, we've been working on emotional expression because he was doing a lot of lying on the floor screaming, which is a fairly common three-year-old boy strategy and tactic. Um, so now he's very good at expressing. He spends a lot of his time saying, I am just really cross. And I say, oh, dear, I'm so sorry. What are you cross? And he thinks about it and he thinks, I am cross with you. <laughs> and I think... Okay, there's not really where else to go with that. So now we're working on some, some basic calming strategies. <laughs> That's for, for me and for him. <laughs> but so they are both changing a lot, and they are both as well as engaging with a world that's cha changing and that challenges them in different ways. Both of them, actually, their brains are, are, are changing in actually some very similar ways. This is a, um, these are a series of, um, of scans of brains of children and young people changing. And in rough terms, as it gets more purple, it gets more mature. That, that's a sort of a sweeping generalization of what's going on. But we used to think that my son's age was actually the sort of last time that your brain underwent any significant dramatic change. But what we know now is that actually teenagers and this whole phase through adolescence, we see it as dramatic changes as we do in this sort of toddlerhood that my son's just hopefully coming out of. And um, it's, it affects some different places, but the same sort of things are going on, changes in the structure, fine-tuning of some of the things that are going on there. And so what we know is that for teenagers and young people, their experience of the world, their view of the world, their perception of the world is different from what ours would be. Their brains are very different. And if you think about what... <laughs> yeah, I know, this is, a, this is a good... It's a funny slide. <laughs> If I think about my daughter's view of the world, not only is it very different to mine, but it's different to what it was two years ago. And, and once she's 12, 14, 16, this is going to keep changing. And so we have to work with children and young people of whatever age, recognising that, that what they understand is different to what we understand. And particularly in those turbulent teenage years, we need to understand that something about their emotional experience of the world is different. And, and as we do that, our role has to change. So my son's age and, and sort of primary school age, the younger, the younger end of that particularly, our role as adults is very much about sort of interpreting and reflecting back for them all the time. So I joke about it, but my job as my little boy's mum is to help him understand that horrible feeling he gets when he just has to lie on the floor and scream because he doesn't know how to handle it. And I have to teach him that that is called frustration and where did that come from and how actually might he not get into that state next time, hopefully. Once you're getting more to the age that my daughter is in, into teenage years, our role becomes more about teaching them because our level of control is much less. I control my son's world to a, to a greater or lesser extent. When it's not me, it's his teachers or whatever. My daughter's world is, is totally becoming out of my control. And once she goes off to secondary school, even more so. So my job for her is to be teaching her some strategies, some skills, still working with her on this basic stuff of understanding what her emotions are, knowing how to deal with them, knowing how to make things feel better when they feel bad. But more and more, it's going to be about her because I'm not going to be around all the time when things are difficult. We need to recognise that teenage emotions are very different from ours. And, and this is perhaps unexpected, because for my son, people would look at him and they would expect his emotions to be, dif to be different. You know, when he's, when he's lying on the floor screaming, people kind of, they, it's expected. It is in England. Did you know in France, children don't have tantrums? It's very bizarre. I don't know how on earth they do that. Two years wasn't long enough to learn that. People would come up to me and say things like, what's wrong with him? 
And I would think, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> My favorite moment was in the supermarket in France when he was having a full-blown full tantrum. And a, a very nice French lady came up to me and said, obviously in French, she said, oh, is he missing his mother? <laughs> and I thought, my child is being so awful that she thinks I'm some kind of poor, long-suffering au pair or something. And you know, a huge part of me was tempted to say, yes, he is. What a shame. <laughs> but instead, no, I, in my best French, I said, I am his mother. And then I stormed off. Anyway. <laughs> but my daughter and her older friends, just like my son, their emotions are very different to mine. Their understanding of them is different. Their vocabulary to talk about them is different. And their ability to manage them is very different. And this is, this is a graph that I use a lot with people I'm working with of all ages. And I'm going to use it just to explain to you a little bit about one of the key ways that teenage emotions in particular are different. So if you imagine your emotions as along this scale, you'll see this scale. You've got plus 10 at the top and minus 10 at the bottom. Uh, so the top zone of this is a sort of happy zone. This is where you would chart if you're having a good day. So hopefully, most of us here would be, if, we, if I said, how are you feeling right now, you'd be somewhere in that top zone. The bottom zone is the more difficult zone. This is where the negative emotions would be if you're feeling sad or angry or you've got some difficult stuff going on. Maybe you're anxious, you're nervous. Maybe you're bored of my seminar already, which is bad news because I've only just started. But so you would be in this bottom zone here. And I, I, when I'm working with people, I ask them quite regularly to keep a chart of how they're feeling and how their emotions are, both because it's about them communicating to me, but also because it helps them develop a better understanding themselves of their emotions and what they're experiencing. Now, if I asked all you guys to keep a, a trace of your emotions over the next days and weeks, maybe months, as adults, so sort of certainly over 25, assuming that life is reasonably calm for you at the moment... Um, and you don't have any particular challenges, which I would include, by the way, toddlers or things like that, your trace would be roughly like this. Mostly, we, we experience emotions in the sort of middle zone, so somewhere around minus one up to about three. Um, so the good news about being adult is that um, it takes quite a lot to get us significantly down on the whole, and, and if we do dip... Usually we're quite good if, we're, if life's going okay. We're quite good at managing that, at doing things to cheer ourselves up. We're quite in control of our world, so we can do that. The, the bad news is it takes a lot to get us excited as well. You don't see as many sort of eight to tens. Interestingly, when I work with people who are struggling and I ask them what they think normal emotions are like, they very often say that they would be always in eight to ten. So it's an interesting normality thing to say, actually, what is normal life? What is being happy? It's not about being totally psyched out all the time. It's actually basically just about moseying on around there in the middle zone. Would anybody like to see a typical trace for the teenagers I work with? Yeah, you'd like to see this, wouldn't you? Now, this is normal teenagers, I would say. This is not showing... There's no diagnostic criteria here. So that's fairly typical of a teenage trace. So teenage emotions, because of the way they're changing, the part of their brain that's changing is this part at the front... Um, there's two things that, um, amongst many that that in, in is involved in. One of them is sort of impulsivity. How quickly do things change? How good are you at managing things that change? 
and the other is the more complex social emotions. So you're, those of you who've got teenagers or if you work with teenagers, their social world is incredibly complex. You know, it used to be when my daughter came home from school, I would just say, oh, you know, who's friends with who? Now I wouldn't even ask because it would take more, th more time than I have to understand the answer to that question. Their social worlds are very complex, but also their emotions are complex because little things cause bigger reactions. So a typical teenager who I meet, if they're referred to me, they will very often say to me, I think I'm bipolar, partly because it's quite trendy and they'll have read about it in the press, but also because of this up and down nature. But this is actually quite normal for teenage emotions. So if you have teenagers at home, and bearing in mind that, I, well, I have a 10-year-old, but apparently that's teenage now. Um, and, you, and your situation is this, that your teenager is unpredictable. They, um, they scream a lot. They shout. They cry. They yell at you all the time. The good news is that's totally normal. And the bad news is that will last a little bit longer. But it is good that that's normal teenage emotions. There are, there are a few things that teenagers are more prone to because of these uh, more extreme emotions. The first one is something called emotional hijack, which uh, if you've heard me speak before, you might have heard about. This is where your brain, normally your brain will trigger an emotion and stimulate the thinking part of your brain to analyse what's going on around you. And that's very much the role that your emotions are designed to play. They warn you that something significant might be going on. But if the thing that might be significant requires very, very immediate action, so you've just stepped out into the road and there's a bus coming at you. It doesn't do you or your brain much good if it just stimulates the thinking part and you're thinking, ah, oh, look, I'm in the road, there's a bus coming, let's consider its speed, the time before impact, is it, am I nearer to that curb or that curb? This is no use to you. So your brain has a shortcut hijack route whereby it can trigger you to react before you think. And um, this is the same thing that you see uh, when you come into the kitchen and you see something on the floor that looks like a spider. And so you panic and you scream um, and you call whoever in your house deals with them, which might be you or it might be someone else. And then you realise it's the top of a tomato. Yeah. <laughs> this is also why our teenagers who have emotions that are generally more strong, so they're more prone to this, you, you say to them, what were you thinking? And the honest answer is they weren't. They were just reacting all over the place. And part of adult emotional control is learning to do that less and to control our emotions better and to control how we react. But some of teenage emotions is because genuinely they're being hijacked. Just like my son. They don't lie on the floor and scream. They, they stand up and scream mostly. But um, it's quite a similar process that's going on. The second thing is that they're much more prone to the influence of various drugs that have an impact on the brain. So whether it's um, the morning coffee or Red Bull, or whether it's something a bit stronger, whether it's the drinking that they're doing in the evenings, they get a bigger effect from it in terms of their brain response. So they are more prone, therefore, to get, coming to use these things more habitually than we are. And we're pretty prone to it sometimes with the caffeine and stuff, aren't we? Let's face it. So that's worth being aware. Oh, my clickers. Oh, there we go. The other thing that they are prone to is issues around risk and how they manage risk. So the teenage brain is very bad at linking an action that it does now with an effect that happens in the future sometime. Whether that's quite soon in the future or whether it's a long-term thing like studying and getting decent grades. So they are much more prone to issues around risk-taking and risky behaviour. They don't always think things through. 
So you can see that these three things that are going on can be a bit of a heady mix when we're working with these young people. And the problem is, is that in our culture, these things are all happening at a time when teenagers and young people are under increasing pressure. They are genuinely under a lot of pressure. And there's a lot of debate I know about how these changes, how much it's genuine and, you know, did we all struggle in the same way when we were younger? I know I wouldn't like to be a teenager now. My life as a teenager felt complicated, but it felt a lot simpler than the life that my daughter is about to move into in her teenage years. There are two things about their world that make it more complex. Of course, one of them is social media. And the ever-present nature of that means that they don't get time out from the complexity of their social world. It also introduces extra complexity because of the number of people that they're dealing with. The other thing is um, family breakdown, which I'm sure many of you will have come across. Uh, uh, vast numbers of the, the kids and young people who I work with will have are trying to manage some of the issues around family breakdown, whether that's emotional or whether sometimes it's purely practical so they have two homes, two places where they live. This is just, again, adding extra complexity for them. The other issue that's, that's common for them to have to struggle with is this whole one of work-life balance, which I'm going to talk about this afternoon if anybody's coming to my session on burnout. But for them as well, there is this, this, this issue, not, as they go for, not just now, but as they go forward into the future, of how are they going to manage that? When do they get time out? And if I look at young people now and think, well, what is going to predict whether this young person is going to be successful in their future life? <clears throat> And by successful, I don't mean, are they going to earn the most money? Are they going to have the best career? Really, I mean, are they going to be happy? Are they going to achieve their goals? Are they going to live the potential that is in them? I know that something about how they manage their emotional health and their emotional wisdom around decisions like when they stop, when they take rest, how they manage stress, how they manage anxiety, that is going to be as influential as any academic grades that they get. So this stuff is as important now as anything else that they're being taught in schools. And I'm a great person to go on school open days with because I'm a right pain. That's all I want to know. I, I'm sure they cover the academic stuff. I want to know, how are you going to teach my children how to manage their emotions? How are you going to teach my children how to manage stress? How are you going to teach my children to reach their potential? Because this stuff is as important. It is statistically as likely that they will slip through the cracks because of issues with their emotions as it is that they will fail some exams because of some inherent academic weakness. So we have to consider this stuff. It's really important. This was a, is a quote from a government report from uh, 2015 saying, saying that a rapid and dramatic societal shift is what we're seeing right now. And I think that's true. And I don't think it's overdramatic, therefore, when I talk about generation distress. I think we do have a time where there are particular concerns for the children and young people who are growing up in today's UK. And I say UK deliberately because we see different issues in other countries and we don't see these issues in, to the same degree as we see them here. So there is something particular about our culture here. We're not the only ones, but there is something about growing up in this country, in this day and age, that is particularly challenging to children and young people. I could throw stats at you all day, um, but I'm sure that you guys could throw them back at me. We could play like statistical table tennis. You probably know as many as I do. A quarter of teenagers will have experienced depression by the time they're 19. 
One in five 12-year-olds say that they are struggling with stress and anxiety. Um, this, these are from a whole variety of different studies. We know that if you talk to 14-year-old girls, a quarter of them say that they have an eating disorder. Obviously, that's self-diagnosed. So, but we're talking about their experiences of emotional distress here, and we know that the rates are very high. Um, if we talk self-harm, self-harm is the big challenge of, of our current culture because it is exploding in schools all across the country. And 90% um, of schools in one study said they'd encountered issues of self-harm. Nearly half, I think it was something like 48%, said that it was a serious problem for them. And it's certainly something you'll hear us talking about in our area in, in schools. Um, this is an, another report... And I think this is the other issue around mental health that makes it so such a big issue, such, something that I'm so passionate about and that I think it's so important we engage with. Um, this is a, for the, a quote from the Children's Commissioner for England, and she says, if every child knows if they are unwell with a stomachache or hurt their leg, they go to the doctor. Unfortunately, they don't have that confidence when it comes to mental health. Where do our children and young people go when they feel dreadful and they don't know what to do? Where do our children and young people go when their emotions have become painful, difficult, out of control, and they don't know what to do? The answer, according to the Children's Commissioner, is they go to the internet, and if they're lucky, they come across good resources, but very often they don't. They go to social media, they go to their friends. We need to make sure that there's somewhere that they can go to. This is a, an, another interesting quote. This is from, um, from some, a load of figures that have been released today for World Mental Health Day. And uh, isn't it just, I like the image of it, but t so 10% of children will s struggle with some kind of mental health problem. But 70% of them fail to get the help they need soon enough to help them. So whereas maybe 20 years ago, I might have been talking to you all saying, well, this is a big problem, let's all pray about it, and then let's all refer them to the psychologist. Now I'm saying, no, we need to do more than that. It's really important that we get involved, that we get engaged, and that we provide support for these children and young people. And if we're going to see a turnaround in this generation, um, it will only come with the assistance of people who I believe the people best placed to do this will be the churches who have the networks and the youth teams and all of the different people to do this. So what I want to give you this morning is a message saying, let's get out there, let's do this, and that you can make a difference. Of course, there's some stuff that needs to be done by the professionals. Of course, there is a point, a line at which things need to be done by professionals. But the vast majority of what these children and young people need is, is not rocket science. It's not that sort of stuff. It's things that we can all do and we really can make a difference with. So hopefully at the end of this session, you'll feel a bit inspired by that. Um, and you'll have some ideas. Let me introduce um, these guys from FaZe. This is Donna. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Good morning, everyone. Hello. They're, they're very nice. They're not scary. Yeah, Bethany stands up. I'm going to introduce Bethany. Do your Bethany least scary Bethany face, in. everyone, okay? <laughs> okay, that's their least scary face. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, I want to introduce you, and Donna's going to tell you a bit about their organisation. These guys are from an organisation called FaZe, which is running in Hitchin. So over to you. Tell us a bit about FaZe and what you're doing. So, um, yeah, so first of all, I just want to say thank you, Kate, because this is just an, a massive privilege for us to be asked to, to speak to you today, because essentially we are just this little organisation in Hitchin, very much still going through a learning process in this stuff. So our hope for today, really, is that by sharing some of our learning with you, that that might act as an encouragement, because I think there's so much that we can be doing to make a difference to this generation of young people that we're hearing about this morning. And as we've stepped out and started working more in this area, we have already been overwhelmed by the support that we've had by people who really believe in what we're doing. 
and um, by the demand and uptake for our work, but most importantly by the impact that we can already see that it is having on young people. And so I want to tell you a bit about the, the who FAZE are and the journey that we've sort of been on. Um, so FAZE is, um, is a Christian uh, schools work organisation. It was originally set up about 13 years ago by the churches in Hitchin. And in those early days, it, um, it kind of acted to serve the local schools and the local young people in Hitchin um, by doing things like RE lessons, assemblies, some lunchtime groups, setting up, you know, Christian student unions and things like that. So very much what you might think of for that sort of traditional schools work model. And then as the, um, the relationship with those schools developed from that one person, initially phase, it, it was just one youth worker going around and doing some of this stuff. But as that reputation grew and the relationship developed with schools and the, the trust developed, more and more phase started getting asked to be involved in things like mentoring students who, who needed a bit more guidance. And then, um, or doing things like getting involved in, for whole school year groups, uh, at key transition times, such as from primary to secondary school, and then up into sixth form as well. Um, which, was, which was amazing. That is all good stuff and, and great opportunities to speak into young lives. But a turning point came for FaZe, I think, about 18 months ago, when it got to the point where suddenly they were just inundated by requests from schools to help them to help students struggling with this issue of self-harm. The numbers in our schools in Hitchin were so high. And Hitchin is, if you've ever been there, like, or if you haven't, you should. It's a lovely, lovely area. And there's so many of our young people there struggling with this issue. And the schools just couldn't cope. They didn't have the capacity to support students in an environment where so much emphasis was on academic targets and academic achievement. And so what we see is this, this group of young people suffering on their own because, because no one was there to, to pick up that case and say, yeah, that's our issue, we'll deal with it. Because as we know, some the, the, the stats around self-harm indicate that, that this really can happen to anyone. So there may be a portion of young people for whom self-harm is a way of coping with the distressing symptoms of a mental illness. And, you know, therefore sometimes, it, you know, it is appropriate to get, um, to get CAMS, to get mental health services involved. But for more and more young people, it is becoming a way of coping with the stresses of everyday life. And more and more, we're seeing the case where, you know, everyone thinks, oh, we'll just, just refer to CAMS, just, just refer to somebody. And then we know, don't we? We hear in the news all the time that our mental health services are already desperately overstretched. And they'll say, actually, you know, there isn't a clear mental health diagnosis here. This isn't our criteria. We can't do anything. And so everyone's kind of putting their hands up and saying, sorry, this isn't our thing. This, is, this isn't our area. And there was this huge gap. At this time, um, what the work that FaZe was doing, um, the, the aim at that time of FaZe was to support the development of well-being in young people. And actually, FaZe were, in, in many ways, were doing a great job of doing that. They were doing a great job of helping the schools to deliver on their, their Ofsted targets for SMSC, which is Spiritual, Moral, Social, Cultural Development. And, uh, and so by doing all those assemblies and lessons and mentoring and stuff, that, that was a great way of supporting schools in doing that. But suddenly there was this, this challenge that actually if we really want to be supporting the whole well-being of the young people in our town, then we can't be ignoring this huge area of emotional and mental health. 
And suddenly we've gone on that journey of realizing that that stuff needs to be at the core of what we're doing. And we need to be the ones who are stepping forward and saying, yeah, we'll do something about this. And so that is this crazy journey that we have been on lately. So um, FaZe, about a year or so ago, um, went about reshaping the work that they do in order to fill that gap in self-harm, support and intervention. But also to step back and try and think about this wider issue of mental and emotional well-being. And to kind of ask that question of, actually, what could self-harm prevention look like? Why is nobody talking about that? Because if we can teach our young people about how to cope with their emotions, about how to communicate well with people, about how to develop mental wellness that we're not hearing enough about, if we can teach them to do that, then maybe there won't be as many young people further down the line turning to self-harm as, as the only way that they think they have to cope. So we, of course, started responding to the need that was there in front of us of those who are actually already struggling with this stuff. We, we, we started thinking, right, we need to respond to this need and offer some support to those students who are currently self-harming. But we also need to start thinking about what can we do to stop our young people from getting that, to that point in the first place and try and do something a bit earlier. And so, so we started going on this journey of reshaping our work. And that's kind of how I then got um, involved. So about a year ago, when FaZe started thinking about doing more of this stuff, um, we kind of formed a focus, they formed a focus group. I came in um, as part of that focus group as someone with a bit of experience working in this area. And as is often the way in these kind of things, when you volunteer yourself and you step forwards, I then found myself actually saying, yeah, I'll lead this, I'll, I'll do this. But I was so captured by the vision and actually, this unique idea that, that we can talk prevention, we can talk about emotional and mental wellness and be teaching that in schools, I was so captivated by that that I thought, yeah, I want to I do this and I want to get involved. And, um, and so that's been sort of my journey getting involved in the past year as well. But I also, um, I want to introduce you um, to, to Bethany, who's with us this morning as well, because um, Bethany is something, someone who I find personally really inspirational, and I'm so lucky that she is actually getting involved in what we're doing now. So B Bethany um, is on placement with us. So she started just this September, and already she's just, she's made my life so much easier. Um, we have a wonderful team of volunteers who help us in what we're doing and get involved. Um, but, but Bethany's said that she wants to do her, her placement with us, and she, we have her one day a week. And I just find her story and the reason why she wants to be involved with us really inspiring. So I wanted to ask her to, to share a few thoughts just as well. So, so Bethany, um, tell us, what, why did you want to get in, involved with FaZe? What made you come and, come and join us? Um, so, like, mental health and promoting men me emotional well-being is something that I'm really passionate about. I'm studying for a health and social care course, and I've just applied to start a psychology degree next year. Um, but I, as a teenager and child, I had a personal struggle with self-harm and mental health issues, and living in Hitchin all my life, hearing that FaZe, an organisation that I'd been aware of, was kind of going into this area. I think I just really wanted to be involved because I know where the gaps are. I've been in that position where there hasn't been anyone to turn to or anywhere to go or no one really knows what they're doing with you. Um, so yeah, just want to be involved, help other people out. 
Fantastic. Well, we're very, very privileged to have you with us, Bethany. So tell us a little bit more about your experience. We've heard Kate talking about this generation of young people, and, and uh, you're kind of a bit closer in, in age to that generation. Tell us a bit more about your experience of being a young person. Um, so I come from you know, a pretty together family. I was involved in church and achieved quite highly at school. Um, but I guess, like, underneath those kind of surface-level things, there's quite a lot that can be hiding. And, um, yeah, so I, I ended up, you know, struggling with mental health issues and self-harm. But um, I completely forgot what I was going to say. Um, so that's, <laughs> yeah, so th that's your story, which is, yeah, really inspiring. Did you, what did you um, see in other people yeah, around so you as well and, and the, the, although, the generation around you? So although at school I didn't know of anyone else, really, that was mentally ill and that could be quite isolating I think through what I was going through I kind of just picked up that no one was really mentally well either I think there's just mm. so much like comparison and pressure and just fear among everyone kind of of what growing up is and the what I think you just mm. get that sense of yeah. yeah really powerful thank you Bethany um, so I guess one question that I imagine lots of people in the room will, will want to know is, well, actually, what, what helped you? Because obviously you've, you've come on this incredible journey and you're now using your skills um, in an incredible way to help other people. What helped you get to, to this place today? What helped you the most? So I think although I got to a point where I needed kind of professional intervention cams and hospitals and things, which I you know, couldn't have got better without that, I think the role of youth workers and the church that I was involved with like played a massive like a massive role in my recovery and I think part of that is when you're um you know you're in hospital you're with cams they're kind of saying hello ill person goodbye well person that's how you know it's not their fault that's their job that's how they see you you come with an illness you make steps to get better they say goodbye giving you the impression that they think you're you're okay whereas actually when you know youth workers and people in church, they've known you before they knew you had these issues and they can still be there afterwards. And I think that's it just makes you feel a lot more valued as a person and feel okay about, you know, becoming a better person without all these issues. And I think it's just so helpful when they're around, they're there for you. There's no agenda of talking about your issues or your struggles, but equally they're not afraid to do that if that's what you need. And... Yeah, I just think it's really important. Wow, thank you. I think that's a massive encouragement to all of us here and a massive inspiration as well. So thank you so much for sharing that, Bethany. Can we just give Bethany a big round of applause? Thank you. Thanks, guys. Donna, Donna's going to come back, yeah, so don't I'm gonna worry. I'm going to sit down She's for just a minute and hand back She's going to take a seat. I think that's it's re that's really inspiring. Thanks, you guys, and just just to hear from people on the ground. And I know that loads of you guys are on the ground too. That you're here because you're passionate about young people, and lots of you are involved in equally inspiring stuff that you're doing in your communities, in your areas. And I think that's the key. If my clicker would work, 
Ah, there we go. What I want to ask is, are we ready for this challenge? Are we ready for the challenge of the difference that we could make? Um, this is from Romans 12, and, and, and I want to put, to, to put about a suggestion today that this is more than just a challenge. I think that what we have here is a responsibility. I think it's a God-ordained responsibility for what we are called to be in our community. And that Romans 12 says this, this is from the message, it says that we are called not to become so well-adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking and what's required here is more than just clever words or some good advice on emotions it is somebody somewhere who is pushing against the trends that are going in our culture we have to stand up against it we have to see the things there that are not so good and we have to be willing to take the risk of, of, of standing up for that stuff and of standing up for people this is from, um, from Judges 2, and, and those of you who know your Old Testament will have read this before. But So in, in Judges, what you see is you've got this whole generation of people who've been involved, and they've, they've, they've been involved in all the seriously interesting stuff in the Old Testament before you get into that sort of slightly more difficult bit to read that's all prophets and, and counting and things like that. But um, they've been involved in it, but then they all die. And then there's another generation, and there's this just chilling verse where it says that that generation died and was buried, and another generation grew up who didn't know anything of God. And if you keep reading beyond that, you'll see that things go all kinds of wrong as a result. And, and here we have a situation where we have a generation growing up who don't know stuff. There's things that they're not being given that, that, and challenges that are being placed on them. And I think we have a responsibility to try and do something about that. A responsibility to try and make a difference. I love what um, Bethany was saying that, you know, as churches, as youth leaders, as people there, we are there. We are constant in people's lives through all the different things that they go through. You know, as, as a clinician, if I was working in the NHS, just like Bethany said, I would see people who would come to me, they'd maybe see me for a, a, a period of time, then they'd go away. I'd probably never see them again. In church, I work with people who see who I see for years and years and years. You know, I've seen them as kids. I see them grow up. They maybe go away for a bit at university, but, you know, then they come back. If I'm lucky, I get to marry them. I get to, I get to dedicate their kids. I'm there through all of that stuff, the good stuff and the bad stuff, the ups and downs of life. And we have that consistency in people's lives, and we have that knowledge of them and of who they are. We have that bigger perspective on who they are. And that places us in a really powerful position to be able to help them if they encounter problems on that journey. Because life isn't always smooth, is it? You know, the one thing that we know about life is that it will throw things at us. And as you get older and older, the more you see that is true, that sometimes things happen that you never thought would be part of your life story and you have to manage how to deal with them. And the question that we want to ask at this conference and that you'll hear us harping on about a lot is, what difference would it make if we started to think about emotional and mental health more like we think about physical health? So when we think about physical health, we accept very happily that we all have physical health. Some of us may have specific physical health problems. Some of us may be feeling pretty healthy right now. We probably all do things every day that are about trying to improve our physical health, trying to prevent problems in later life. But how often do we think of mental health in the same way? In schools, you know, they're all about trying to encourage our young people to be fit, to eat healthy, all of this stuff. So we want to push for them to be doing the same sorts of things for their emotional well-being. 
And, and I think we have an opportunity to help our young people know what did the stuff that they need to know as they're growing up, not just to grow up physically healthy as, as into physically healthy adults, but into emotionally healthy adults. And emotional health has this extra challenge that we don't just need to be healthy, we need to be resilient. We need to be able to, to, to manage whatever life does throw at us. You know, if the parable of the, the guy who builds his house on the rock and the guy who builds his house on the sand, if that teaches us one thing, it teaches us that both those people encountered storms and we all will encounter storms the question is not will you encounter storms in your life the question is will you still be standing after them and that's what we need to teach children and young people particularly in a world where there are a lot of storms and challenges and pressures and the reason is is that this is about more than just helping them survive it I want to give you a vision and encourage you to think of of young people with the potential that God has placed in each and every one of them and we know that they have the potential to do all kinds of things and to be all kinds of incredible people and too often I work with people who have been forced to let go of their dreams let go of their potential who have been told that as a result of emotional mental health problems they can't do things no I'm sorry you can't manage that you have depression I'm sorry you struggle with anxiety you're not going to be able to be in that profession I'm sorry you can't be a church leader because you have an issue with an eating disorder we have to get past that and instead Look at how we can encourage children and young people to grow who they are, to gain in confidence, to gain some of the skills they need. And maybe, God willing, we pray that they will overcome a lot of that stuff. But as um, Will was saying this morning, we need to make sure that our theology and our narrative of healing and of health has a space for people who go on to struggle. Because in our world, it, it is not perfect. This is not the way that God intended things to be. And there will be, be, be people who will continue to struggle. And we all know there will be people who seem to be dealt such a harsh hand in terms of the stuff they have to overcome and, and get through and manage. So we need to be able to manage all of that. So I want to think about for the second half of the seminar, you know, there is no clock in this room. As far as I'm concerned, this room is like a little separate portal in the time-space continuum. And, you know... So I'm just going to, because just because that might not be true, I'm going to keep looking at my phone. It's not because I'm bored by you or by me. Um, it's just so that I don't, not still talking here when the rest of the day is carrying on. So I want to think about how to, and I'm going to get the guys from, uh, for, get Donna particularly from Faze to come back, and I'm going to chat to her a bit. But first, I wanted to show you a video. This is a, um, a video that they put together um, for use in the community, but also just to raise people's awareness of the issues and that they are there. So, um if my clicker will let me click it, it's going to start. We will start. I just need one more click. i 
Donna to come back and tell us a bit more about Faze. So, Donna, it's a striking video, that one, is, don't you think? <coughs> tell us a bit, first of all, because I know people will want to understand more, how are you actually linked to local churches? Tell us about that background of support. Yeah, so it, it really was birthed from the local churches. Um, essentially, we have something called Churches Together in Hitchin, um, like the little community of churches who work together, and they decided they wanted, um, they had their own youth workers in the church, but they wanted a youth worker who was specifically going into the schools and engaging in the community. And, um, and that's kind of how it, how it started, with just this one schools worker who would go into the local schools. But it's still very much connected. Um, I think we've really held on to the fact that we are connected to our local churches. Um, they fund us. They absolutely support what we do and believe what we do. Um, we go and feed back to the churches and, and, and encourage them to be, to be you know, thinking about the well-being of their young people in their churches as well. And, um, and we're still very much linked with the youth workers. So we have something called a forum. So once a month, all the youth workers and our phase youth workers all get together and try and sort of share good practice and just learn from one another. And in terms of funding, are you funded by local churches? Yeah, partly, yeah. They're a big supporter of what we do, absolutely. And where, yeah. partly then, partly where else? And then, um, oh, this is the challenge now as we're stepping out into these new ways of working. Um, we, you know, the, the capacity of phase has to grow and we're having to learn a lot more about fundraising. And that's a big challenge. So we're now going to big funders and asking for grants and it's, it's a big part of the work when, when doing this kind of thing. But we're stepping out, we're learning as we go very much. And um, we've got some, you know, we're applying for local council things we've you know we've written off to the big lottery to children in need all these big people um and uh, yeah so that's something we've really had to, to up our game in and learn a bit more about so great so you you've mentioned self-harm <coughs> i know i've got a slide up um of your some of your sort of strategy what can you fill us all in a bit then on how this is with this one specific okay. issue but how you're planning to work on it well, yeah, essentially, we've come up with three aims for this area of our work. Um, before I explain this one briefly, I'll just explain all the stuff that we were doing before in the, the SMSC stuff that I described, the lessons and assemblies, and we're still doing that stuff. That is still important. That's what established the relationship in the first place and opened the doors for us. So we still have um, a couple of guys who still carry on doing that work, and, and I'll help out with that stuff as well. But for this area of our work, for the mental well-being stuff, we've developed three aims. So the first aim, and, and it kind of goes on, I'm going to point to the, to the model for which um, area uh, shows what kind of work that looks like. So this outer area here is to promote the mental health and emotional well-being of all young people in our schools. And then in this middle area here, there's stuff that meets the aim of preventing self-harm 
in those who are at risk. And then in the centre, there's that um, support for young people who are actively self-harming. So we've got this kind of three-pronged approach, really. We want to be reaching all young people by talking about stuff. So we've got things like, you know, at the top there, we've got listed the Let's Talk video series. That, for us, has been an amazing tool. And, um, and it's not even that we really are experts in creating videos or anything like that. You don't always have to be the expert yourself, but you can talk to people and get conversations going, get other local community people involved. But, you know, there's some really talented guys in our town. We spoke to them and said, do you want to help us do this? And, and they helped us put together that amazing video, which um, has, has opened doors for us once again. Um, but that's something we've taken to all the schools in our town. But along with that, and, and if anyone does actually want to use that video, please do. That's why we created it. We want people to be taking this out and showing it to young people to encourage them to talk to people. So, um, so please do use that video. But with, along with that, we are creating an education pack. Um, so it's just in pilot stage at the moment. So basically, it's a, it's a lesson resource, but also some other um, ways that you could use it with small groups and things like that. So we've worked with some teachers and stuff on putting together um, a, a whole education pack of how this could be used and a load of background information as well so you feel sure of how to to deal with some of the conversations that come up from it. So that's another thing that we're creating and, and would absolutely want to send out to, to people as well to you. So if you're interested, um, there is an email address, let's talk at phase-hitchin.org. So that's let's talk at phase-hitchin.org. If you are interested in, in getting that education pack, do drop us an email. Um, because we don't just want to be doing it in our town, Hitchin. We want this kind of stuff to be going everywhere. But, but within, within the schools that we're working in, we're doing then particular lessons and assemblies around these kind of issues of coping with stress, about how to build an emotional toolkit, if you like, about how to communicate with people. We've created lessons and assemblies and stuff on that that we're delivering that every young person is going to benefit from. We're actually talking about creating a year six emotional resilience workshop because we think actually if we're seeing young people at the age of 11 who are turning up at A&E after incidents of self-harm, we need to be doing something earlier. We can't just say, we're going to wait until they're older. We're going to wait until they're about 14 before we start talking about that stuff. That's too late. So we're going to be doing some year six work around emotional resilience and get talking about that stuff early. And, um, and we've got, so we've got all the different sort of projects listed there that we do at that level. Um, but in the centre there is the stuff that we've developed, the, the kind of specialist support that we've developed for those who are already in that place where they're struggling with self-harm. And so we've developed an eight-week course um, that, that leads people on this journey of understanding why they self-harm, understanding their emotions, to then move into a place where they can start thinking about um, coping with their emotions in another way. So we've got this eight-week course that we deliver. We also do some one-to-one -one mentoring because not everyone is going to be ready for a course, ready for a group work. Um, so we deliver one-to-one -one mentoring as well. And then we um, are about to start something called Creative Space, which is a fortnightly drop-in because we want this ongoing relationship. Bethany's kind of already said about how it's very great having this intervention, but sometimes you know people just say, bye, that's it, that's the end, you're finished with, with us now. And we want to be able to continue the relationship. So um, we are trying to build up this, this drop-in service as well that will run once a fortnight to continue that relationship for those who need it. Yes, yeah, we do. It is um, phase-hitchin.org. So www.phase-hitchin.org. So thank you for asking. Um, I wasn't sure if that was going to come up on a slide, so I'm glad someone did ask. Um,
So yes, yeah, so that's sorry. I've talked right. awful no, lot just to try and explain. <laughs> One of the things that interests yeah. me, I know that when I talk about this, a lot of the questions that we get, people are often a little bit nervous about getting involved with children, young people, particularly they're dealing with potentially very vulnerable young people. How have you had to sort of raise your game to manage the challenges of that and and all the issues around policies and things like that? It would be interesting just to hear you talk about that for a second. I'm sure that's what a lot of people are thinking. Yeah, well, no, you're right. I think a lot of people, and that, that's, I think, what Faze was seeing, that a lot of people were too scared to, to step up and start doing something in this area. And, um, and I have to say, it's not, it's not been really, really easy, but it's been a lot easier, I think, than, than you might think it, um, it would be. And essentially, I did feel that when I first came, involved, came in, into Faze and got involved, I felt like I was literally turning everything upside down and making them redo everything. Um, but, but actually, it's been an okay process. There's that time where actually we had to do a lot of figuring out processes, creating documents, because we needed to suddenly up our game a bit and become, we needed to start talking about proper note-taking, about proper you know, contact logs, keeping really good records of stuff. We needed to talk about referral forms, parent consent forms, doing assessments, you know, we had to have proper processes involved that, you know, when we were doing the, the mentoring and stuff like that before, those things were loosely there, but it was much more in an informal way. And we realized actually we need to up our game in this and we need to have some proper documentation and redo policies and things as well. When we, we do work mainly in schools, so we're very much kind of protected by that. We come under their safeguarding policies. We kind of do whatever they, they want us to do in that area, really. But now, I guess, you know, as I mentioned, we're about to start doing this drop-in service outside of school. So suddenly I'm, I'm saying, you know, okay, well, we've got our own safeguarding policy. And when we go in school, we, we, you know, we do stuff in there. But we need to have something specific, actually, that, that is around the area of self-harm. If we're having very vulnerable young people coming to a space outside of school with us, um, we need to add in a whole other chunk to our safeguarding policy that thinks about, you know, where do we stand on self-harm? What do we do in this kind of situation? What do we do in that? And so there's been lots of difficult conversations, lots of documents and stuff produced, but, but it is doable. And it's, and it's also having lots of conversations with, if you're not the expert, there are people there that you can go and chat to. You know, there's, so we've had lots of different professionals that we've gone to for guidance, and Kate being one of them actually has been, you know, provided wonderful support to us. So, so it is doable, and there are people who can support you. Um, we'll come to professionals in a minute. Because, you know, they need their whole, their own category. What about parents? It's all these P's I've got to remember. Parents seems like another one. When you're dealing with children and young people, do you have much or any involvement with parents? Um, we do. Well, we have limited contact with parents, to be honest. And I think we've made a conscious decision, really, that we are there primarily for young people. We want to provide a service to them. You've got to kind of, um, you've got to choose your areas you're going to focus on because I, I want to be able to do everything. I want to be able to make a difference for everyone and make everything okay, but I can't and I've just got to pick who I'm going to work with. So young people are our focus. Um, we do um, make sure we get parent consent for, for a lot of the work that we do. So when we do things like the, um, the course, the eight-week group program that we do, we do get parent consent to do that, but we do that with the schools as well. And so, um, so we'll send parent consent forms through the school. And so we're kind of very much covered um, with them on that kind of stuff. I've had, um, I have had, you know, um, phone calls from parents and things, and I'm, I can see that this really is an area that there's a lack of support for parents, and I desperately do feel for them um, through going, going through this stuff. So a sideline thing that we're looking, I mean, this, this model of support that we've got up here is actually what we're doing for young people, but there's some other stuff on the side that we're looking at developing. And one thing is a parent-led support group. So that actually frees us, that's not going to be something that we're so closely involved in, and I've got some fantastic parents who've stepped forwards who... 
um, are further along this journey who have said, yeah, we're happy to take a lead on this stuff, and they're going to be leading a parent-led support group. So that is in, in the pipeline for us, um, which we're excited about. But, but yeah, parents is another thing to consider. And I do, like I said, I have to go with what the schools say. So the schools say we need, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the schools I work in, their policy for self-harm is if someone discloses that they self-harm or that has to be reported home to parents in schools. So whether or not I think that is the best way of dealing with it, that's what the schools do, so we, we work with that. Great. And just quickly, about professionals, how have the professionals, particularly those in CAMS and local mental health teams, how have they responded to what you're doing? So, as I said, as we're very much in the kind of early stages and learning process on this, we've had some input on a couple of key individuals who've helped us to really kind of um, build this framework for working. But what we want to start doing now is getting, um, getting known and, and building um, relationship with those other services. And we want to build this kind of spirit of collaboration that actually we're all for each other and we want to help each other. And so something we've got lined up is we really want to build that relationship with CAMS. So at the moment, it's just been you know, one or two names that we've had contact with. But actually, uh, what we're looking at doing is setting up something where we invite these, these local professionals, we invite all the, the local CAMS workers to come and hear about what we're doing. And, um, and what I would love to do as well, um, um, as part of our kind of assessment and note-taking on young people, is, is taking note of those who are already being seen by CAMS and actually that there being that kind of open sort of, you know, line of communication with them to say, actually, we're working with this young person just so that, that you know, kind of courtesy to let them know that we're working with their young people. And, um, but I think they work really nicely alongside each other. And I think it's important to hand hold young people sometimes through that process of getting those other professional clinical services. Sometimes they need that other support alongside. And I think professionals are really open to that. Um, yeah. Great, thank you. So because of the time, I'm, go I'm going to stop asking Donna questions, but she will be available after the session, so come and yeah, ask her. Yeah, I'm, I'm really around, happy to people so to come, yeah, and, come and ask come and her chat. more questions. Definitely. I think thank the you. issue with um, professionals is, is a really key one. And I just want to make the point that what, we're, what I'm suggesting that we do and what at Mind and Soul we want to encourage people to do is not to go out to replace mental health professionals. That, that's not what we're doing at all. In fact, what you're about is, is enabling them to do their job even better. And that's a gift to them as much as it is to the young people you're working with because all those things that you get frustrated with about local mental health services do you know they're frustrated by it too um, they're even more so than you because they're living with it day in day out and through working with young people ourselves we can support the relationships they develop with CAMS so I know I've had experiences working through mentoring in local schools where children who otherwise would not have engaged with CAMS because the first time they went they hated it and said that's it I'm never talking to this woman ever again we've been been able to encourage them to maybe work on that. So we've been able to work with camps to prepare kids for the first meeting. We've been able to arrange other meeting venues sometimes when it's just the place that's not great. All sorts of things that we can do. We can help back up the work they're doing. So um, if a CAMS psychologist, say, is working with a young person on CBT, we can help with that. We can give them some extra information. We can help them with homework tasks, all this stuff. So there's loads that we can do in supporting the ones who are also getting this higher level support that, that enables that, that support to be more effective. 
And I just, I want to finish really just to encourage you thinking about the impact this can have and, you know, come and talk to Donna about some of the impact they have. I know I've seen, and, and I, I'll be honest, I was surprised by the magnitude of it because I've worked as a, as a professional. I thought coming in this context and working as maybe a school's mentor or in this sort of different relationship, I, I thought it would be interesting. I didn't expect how influential it would be. And, you know, your role if you come in as a youth worker or a mentor as whatever it is, I mean, as, as Bethany's already said so well, is so different to that that you have as a professional. If I, if I meet a young person as a professional, they already have preconceptions about who I am. They know what they're going to get from me. It's quite narrow. When they come to me to meet me as a mentor or just someone from their church, it's totally different. It's much easier to engage with them for a start because they're generally less scared of me than they are if I'm a scary professional behind a, a scary door in a probably quite scary building. I don't know where your local uh, cam services are, but they're often not in the best place. But also, I have a lot more flexibility to be able to help them, to provide things, to suggest opportunities and, and different interesting stuff I can do to help them grow grow and my interest in them is so clearly about them as a whole person that that as well is helpful but mostly just that I'm different I'm not a teacher I'm not a parent when I am a parent with my own kids I'm very struck by how often sometimes when difficult issues come up I am not the best person to deal with them particularly for my daughter now she's getting older and I've always said that to other people that as a parent you're not always in the best position because you're very emotionally involved and it's much harder for me being a parent with my own kids than it is seeing other people's kids. I would deal with other people's kids' problems all day, much more than I deal with my own. It's much more difficult when it's my own kids. Because blaming the parents is a lot harder when it's you for a start. <laughs> I'm like, yes, your mother sounds like she's really handled that badly. But anyway, um, so you come in with this new role, and I just think this is so powerful. This image just reminds me of a little story of a, it's a friend of mine who was working mentoring in local schools, and she was actually working with a little lad who was only seven. Increasingly, we're, we've been asked to, as part of mentoring in our town to get involved with younger children. And um, it was just a, just a little tiny quote that to me illustrated a lot about this. And he said, um, oh, I love it when you come. He said, I can always tell when you come because I can hear your flip-flops coming down the corridor. And I love that, but I love what it, what it indicated to him. This was somebody different. All the other people, and this was a kid with a complex life, all the other millions of people involved in his life were quite scary people, probably with high heels or suits. And there was one person in his life who came in in flip-flops, and this was his, his mentor in that case. And, and through her involvement, you know, this, this kid was being seen by people with all kinds of letters after their name and skills. She came in, she was a children's worker, she was actually from our local church, what did she do? She sat down with him. She did quite a lot of painting, um, things like that. But she was able to transform this kid's behavior much better than all the other professionals were just because she was spending time with him. So think about that. Your, your power may well be in your role. The other one that I wanted to talk about um, was a girl who I was working with myself, who, again, complex, lots of different services involved. And I was asked to come in by the school really just to help her make sense of it all and come to some big decisions about her life. But I remember really clearly the session when I was talking to her and we were going through all the different people and she was seeing a psychiatrist and a doctor for this and people for that. And I was trying to explain what my role was. And she suddenly, she'd gone really quiet. And I was like, oh, are you all right? if I said something that doesn't make any sense. She was like, hang on, she said, are you just here to listen to me? And I was like, yeah, thinking, well, obviously. And she's like, wow. And this was the first time in her whole life that she'd felt that there was somebody there and that was their role. My entire role was to help her 
express better what she was feeling, what she wanted and all of this. And again, I didn't do anything hugely clever with that girl, but my involvement enabled her to make to have more of a say, to make some changes, to better her relationship with a lot of the other professionals involved with her. So we can be encouraged by this stuff, that we have the potential to, to do something which is, which is powerful. I want to end with, with just a quick prayer. And, and really, this is my prayer for all of us as we go out into this work and as people who are passionate about it. I love this verse from Philippians 2. This is from the NIV. And if you know the verse, it, it talks about people who are living in a, in a corrupt generation, in a generation where there is bad stuff going on. And it says this about them, that, that they will shine amongst that generation like stars in the sky. And this is my prayer for the young people that we work with, so many of them growing up in difficult situations, facing difficult, challenging stuff. But we want them to shine. And we know that God is in them. And we see in each and every one of them the promise and the potential that God's placed in them. And we want to enable them to shine. And that's what we want. This verse also in the message, I think, is a fantastic prayer for us as people working with them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gonna turn that over and I'm going to just say this as, as part of a prayer for us. So perhaps as you're sitting listening to this, you know, think about your own circumstances, think about your role, think about what God is calling you to do with the vulnerable children and young people in your area. And it says this, it says, Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry this light-giving message into the night. So, Father, I do just pray for us all today that that's the role that we may have. That we would be able to take something with us when we work with children and young people that is more than just clever words, good psychology, or good insight. I pray that we would carry a life-giving message. And Father, I pray light, pray light and life into the life of every child and young person who is represented by someone in this room today. For the children and young people of our towns, of our villages, of the schools that, and the youth groups that we're involved with, Father, we pray that you would touch their lives and that through our roles in them, we might be able to bring something that will truly bring change. And Father God, we just praise you that no matter how overwhelming and depressing some of the statistics and the things that we read about today's generation and our culture, no matter how depressing those things may be, Lord, we just proclaim that you reign. This is your world and we pray your will upon that generation. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to encourage you all, I'll leave you with, with some notes and stuff to look at. A mind and soul, we are very passionate about children and young people and we are keen to develop more. If you are working with children and young people, watch this space because hopefully we'll get some of this stuff. I'm going to be working with Faze, hopefully to be able to put some of, some of their stuff up as well. So if you're looking to develop this work, if you're looking for models, procedures, all the scary sort of practical stuff that's involved, um, hopefully that will be coming soon. So keep an eye on the Mind and Soul webpage. And if you have ideas of stuff that you need to equip you to do what you do better, come and tell me or send me an email or tweet me because we'd love to make that happen.